Hey, Wall family, super excited to be here with you today as we dive into our second sermon in our Advent series. Last week, Tori did a great job talking about how Jesus is our hope. And today we're going to be talking about God's love, right? So to put it simply, God loves you. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And I say that, and if you're like me, you probably react to that the same way that I would, where I hear that and it's like, yeah, I get it. Like, he loves me, but like, give me something more. Give me, give me that nugget of truth I need to actually feel worthy and embraced. Don't just tell me that God loves me. I already, I already know that. Um, that's how I react. And, but God showed me something really cool a couple weeks ago. My mom called me on my birthday. This is in November. She called to wish me a happy birthday, tell me how much she loves me, you know, what moms do. Um, and, you know, she did something that she actually doesn't do very often. She, for 15 minutes, gave me a rundown of her experience of the events leading up to, to my birthday. And as she started talking, I actually, I did something that I often find it very hard to do for 15 minutes straight, and that's that I just listened. I listened to her as she told me her experience of the story of her firstborn coming into this world. That sounds cheesy, I know, but... Um, <laughs> But the journey leading up to my birth actually wasn't easy for her. So she's, she's excited to meet me, but she's actually two weeks overdue. And so even as she's uh, happy and excited, there's this anxiety that, that uh, is produced in her because she's ho- uh, heard horror stories of C-sections. And I actually was, you know, like I said, two weeks overdue. My breathing was a little off. So the doctors are like, listen, man, we got to get him. We got to get him out. And so she's crying as, as she's processing the unknown of, What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my baby? And as she's walking me through her experience, I start to feel something in my bosom, right? I start to feel (laughs) I'm being emotionally moved as she tells me the story of my first birthday. And I say that, and I'm listening intently, so much so that she pauses, and I'm like, I need to know how the story ends. Like, keep keep going, as if I don't know the outcome, right? (laughs) She obviously gives birth to a beautiful, handsome, um, black baby boy, right? Um, But I ended ended that conversation seriously thinking, dang, man, my mom loves me. And duh, like she loves me. She tells me often she's a good mother. But it was reflecting on her experience of the events that led up to my first birthday that allowed me to experience her love in a new and fresh way. And so I share this because I could stay here all morning and just say the words, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And yet only a few of us would ever admit that the truth that God really loves us actually doesn't move our souls like it should or like it maybe once did. That's the reality. And so just like reflecting on what my mom had to say about her experience, we're to resp- in this moment, we're going to reflect on the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. And my hope is as we do that today, we get a fresh whiff of God's love for us and that it hits us differently and that our affections for Jesus would actually be stirred in a way that leads us to worship. So we'll be in Luke chapter two, verses one through seven, and I'm gonna have my friend Norelli read that for us. Hi, Wall family. My name is Norelli Escalona, and I am a covenant member and a CG shepherd for the college ministry on 37th Street. Today, I will be reading Luke 2nd, one through seventh which is the birth of Jesus Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to the world to be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which was also called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. 
who was with child. And while they were there, the time came to, for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddled cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we reflect on this passage, the first thing really to notice is is those first few words, in those days. And as you continue reading in the first two verses, you see that Luke starts to mention some of the political figures of the time. He brings up political leaders like Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor at the time, and then Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria. And at the time that a you know, the time that he's talking about, a decree was uh, given by Caesar, and it was the first decree. And so in these first couple of verses, we see here that Luke is really into the history of the time. And so you have to ask, like, why does he care that the reader knows what's happening politically? And in order to answer that question, you need to have a little bit of um, understanding of the cultural context he's in. The, the context, in the context that, that he's in, Greek mythology and Roman mythology it's rampant. So you've got stories of Greek goddesses, Roman gods, etc. And yet Luke starts here by saying, in those days, in, in those days, as a way to immediately differentiate this passage from mythology, from folklore, that this actually happened. This isn't a fairy tale. He doesn't start talking about how a once upon a time in a land far, far away, right? Somewhere in Wakanda, the king of like. <laughs> He doesn't start spouting off fictional characters from fantasy land places. He embeds the account of the birth of Jesus in the context of historically verifiable events. Why? So that you can know that the birth of Christ actually happened. And this is just another one of those things where we say it and it's like, yeah, we know. I mean, every Christmas we celebrate it. But but really think about that. Like the God who created the stars became a baby. So if I'm going to reflect on, wow, God really loves me, right? And and if that's to lead me to a greater sense of his love for me, then I need to be reminded that like what I'm reading about actually took place, okay? It actually took place. Even for me as a former Muslim, when I first came to faith and I started hearing about, you know, how much God loves me, I would, I mean, my soul would be so moved. But as time goes on, you just get a little desensitized. You hear the same stories over and over and over again, right? And then that mind-blowing nature that God became a baby, it just starts to kind of lose its oomph, you know? Even talking to Tori, he was like, bro, yeah, you're right. You know, I remember my first Christmas. I don't remember my fifth Christmas. You know what I'm saying? He, he's like, I don't know, right? Um, and so just like, you know, just so what Luke is doing here is he's setting the stage, right? He's setting the stage. He's really hyping this up. He wants the reader to know that, yeah, what I'm about to, what I'm about to talk about, it's going to sound so crazy. So in order for you to really know that it actually happened, I'm going to tie it to events that are actually happening at the time. So you can look back at history and know that this actually happened. So in this brief history lesson, he brings up Caesar Augustus. So real quick. Caesar Augustus wasn't just the first emperor of Rome, but by many, he's considered to be the most successful. And that's not just because he had the longest, Rome, he had the longest um, reign of any empire, or any empire, or any, I'm sorry, y'all, I don't know how to say empire today. Emperor, there we go, thanks. Um, um, but, but before he became emperor, Rome was actually a republic that was falling apart due to the many civil wars that was taking place within it. So Caesar, who just so happened to be the adopted son of Julius Caesar, right? Caesar Augustus, adopted son of Julius Caesar, 
would be considered one of the most successful Roman emperors, not only because he was the first, but because he was able to step into Rome and bring peace and prosperity in a time of great uncertainty, okay? So homeboy was a big deal, so much so that the Roman Senate, they gave him the name Augustus, which actually means exalted one or sacred or worthy to be worshiped. And we already see here how God is using Caesar to foreshadow an even greater ruler to come. A ruler who, like Caesar, will be an adopted son to Joseph of Nazareth. But not just that, he'll actually be God's very own only son, right? Um, the one who will truly be worthy of worship, who will not only bring peace and will not only, yeah, he will not only bring peace, but he'll actually be the very source of peace between man and God. So here we have Caesar Augustus, the most influential man at the time. And what does he do with his authority? He issues the decree. And we see what happens after he does that in verse, in verse three. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. An emphasis on all here. So let's be honest. This is, this is pretty impressive. Like, I'm pretty impressed that, that homeboy can just, at the word, have the entire Roman world impacted. And we see how Mary and Joseph are immediately impacted in verse four. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So imagine being Joseph or Mary, having to walk a roughly 80-mile journey just because some dude in some palace just decided he wanted them to do that. Not even that. He didn't decide that he wanted them to do that. He wanted the world to be registered, likely for the benefit of tax purposes. And so not to mention, Mary is actually, she's pregnant in this journey. Like, I couldn't, I'm not a walker, right? I mean, obviously I walk, but I'm talking long distances. Like, I, long distances, like, to get from point A to point B, for me, is like a necessary evil, right? Like, I, and it's not just because I'm lazy. I just, I have the back of a 90-year-old man. So, like, 20, 20 minutes does it for me, tops, right? Um, and so I couldn't do that walk, especially not pregnant. But what we're about to see here is through Joseph and Mary's obedience, God is actually fulfilling prophecy. So Caesar's feeling really good about himself, seemingly has all the authority in the world. But as the reader, once you see in verse four that David is mentioned twice, and then you realize, wait, Mary and Joseph are traveling to the city of David. Why? Because Joseph is of the lineage of David. And knowing from previous verses, Mary is the virgin who's to give birth to the Messiah. And that Messiah through scripture is, proph is prophesied to be a descendant of, guess who? David. It starts to click like, yo, something big is happening. Some greater authority than Caesar Augustus is actually pulling the strings here, it's not just Caesar Augustus calling the shots, but it's God in all of his sovereignty sovereignly weaving together the fulfillment of a promise he made from the very beginning, okay? This is, this is good stuff. If we're gonna reflect on this, we have to let it sink deep and actually see what's going on. So what promise did God make? Well, shortly after Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, God not only lays out their consequence of their sin, and rebellion against him, but he also issues a promise that one day there'll be a Messiah who would be like a king, just like David, um, but would be an even greater king in that he will reign and rule the world forever. And this king would be a savior who will crush the head of the serpent in order to defeat humanity's number one enemy, sin and death, and he'll ultimately be the means through which humans are restored into right relationship with God. So, but he didn't just promise 
that he would send a savior, he also prophesied through prophet Micah where that savior, where that Messiah would be born and that it would be in Bethlehem. Micah chapter uh, five, verse two, you can go and read it. It says that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. So as we reflect, what do we see? We see God's ultimate authority over circumstances and even more specifically, the timing of those circumstances, right? So so much so it's through a decree issued by a political savior or a, a political ruler Um, that would begin to set in motion the very plan that God has for salvation of his people. So it doesn't matter who's in office, God's will will ultimately be accomplished, amen? I mean, that's something I think, especially in today's age, in today's time, we, we need to hear. So we see God here invading human history, but before he even puts on flesh, it's a beautiful thing. Why? To fulfill his promise, a promise he made because of his great love for us, right? Now, here's the thing about promises. Deep promises made and kept are a solid indication that true love is present, okay? And I think love is is an interesting thing, obviously. Love is one of those things that's tangible, like we all feel it, but it's kind of hard to put into words like what it is, right? Like if I were to ask you, hey, define love in like 10 words, you'd probably have a hard time doing it. And everyone's experience of love is different. You know, we receive love different ways, we give love different ways. That's why the idea of love languages is such a hit. I know for me, if it wasn't for knowing about love languages, I'd have no idea that cleaning the house would actually communicate the depths of my love to my wife, you know? (laughs) No joke, during our first year of marriage, she came home from out of town, seriously, house was clean and she just starts bawling like tears of joy. And I was kind of confused. She was like, you really love me. I was like, yeah, I love you, but I'm kind of confused at how this means such a big deal to you, right? Like if you clean the house, I like barely notice. I clean the house. I clean the house. It's like I've just restated my wedding vows to her. Um, But people can receive love in different ways. As, As ambiguous as it is, there are times where we can all agree. Wow. Okay. Love That's love, y'all. One of those times is, I think, when vows are exchanged at a wedding. When when deep promises are made as a covenant, right, is established between two parties. Promises to never leave in sickness and in health for better or for poor. Those promises, deep promises, that no no matter how bad things get, we are promising before one another, we're promising before our families and we're promising before God that no matter how bad things get, we're gonna, we're gonna stay connected. We're gonna fight for intimacy. We're gonna fight to stay together. And when we see this at a wedding, it's like as ambiguous as love can be to describe, we can all agree like, yo, that's it. Like it's right there. Love is present. Why? Why, why are we able to just agree and see, okay, love is right here? Because we all understand that deep love Love not only makes deep promises, but it keeps them too. So as we continue to reflect on what God has done, we see in verse six, actually, that in God's perfect timing, his promise of redemption is about to come to pass. Verse six, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So verse six tells us that all of these circumstances that we've talked about, are all leading up to the perfect time for the Messiah to enter into this world. So just as Tori mentioned last week that Jesus fulfills all historical hope, we are seeing yet again another example of how Jesus is about to fulfill historical hope here because this is a moment that has been anticipated since the very beginning, since the fall of creation. 
And I think it's beautiful here to note the obedience of Mary and Joseph. I mean, she's pregnant, and some dude mentions something, and then she, they're having to walk a roughly five-day journey, but they are walking in holiness and obedience, and they're trusting God. And in God's perfect timing, he uses them, and he uses the ruler of the time to introduce the world to the Messiah. So as we reflect on that, God invading human history in his perfect timing. For the believer, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, God did not just invade human history 2,000 years ago to introduce the world to the Messiah, but he's also invaded your life and your personal history too, all to show you how much he loves you. Even as I was preparing for the sermon, I started to reflect on my story and how the seemingly you know, circumstances or seemingly uneventful circumstances led to me one day being led to Jesus. I remember being in fifth grade, my dad and I actually, we just got back from academy to buy my very first skateboard. For some reason, I just wanted to get into it. And so we get back, we're in the garage, we're unboxing my skateboard. And then lo and behold, you see a dude skateboarding down the street doing all sorts of tricks that are blowing my mind. I'm like, bro, how? How are you doing that? Like, he's doing kick flips and 360 flips. And, and little did I know that me and this guy would actually end up becoming best friends. And he'd end up teaching me everything I know about skateboarding. I'd end up becoming better than he, but, you know, that's a story for another time. Um, but early in our friendship, I realized, okay, you know, he's Cuban. He grew up in Miami. He actually just moved to Texas to the street that I had actually recently just moved on to when we met, and we become friends, and then two years into our friendship, he gets saved. And at the time, I'm a practicing Muslim, and so he shares the gospel with me, and then he shows me Passion of the Christ when I'm in eighth grade, but I'm not really into the movie. I think it's kind of gross. I'm squeamish. I don't do blood, you know? But yeah, fast forward, fast forward two years after that moment, God would use that movie I thought was gross and this relationship that I had with Daniel to lead me to faith in Jesus, that he would lead me to the Messiah. So what looked like a random sequence of events on the surface in my life was actually God entering into my story, orchestrating events that would one day lead me to the Messiah. And if you're in Christ, that's your story too. God didn't just invade human history 2,000 years ago, but if you're a believer, he's invaded your personal history. And so if we're reflecting on God's love and we want it to hit different, we've got to remember that. We've got to remember that even the story of Jesus being introduced to the world is a reflection of our lives if we're in Christ. Now, if you don't yet know Jesus, the fact that you're watching this guided gathering right now is evident. It's, it's evidence that God is actually pursuing you in this moment, that he's pursuing you through this church, like through this worship gathering, through his word being preached, maybe even through a friend, maybe even a friend that invited you over to watch this guided gathering. That friend may have told you that, you know, they would make you breakfast to have you come over, but when you showed up, they threw a cliff bar at you and turned on the guided gathering, right? <laughs> that could very well be the case, but this is God entering into your story in pursuit of you to lead you to the lover of your soul. And so we see here that God is fulfilling his promise to send a savior in his perfect timing. But what's, what's even more mind-blowing about this isn't just that God would send a savior, but it's also the way that he does it. You know, from the very beginning of this chapter, you know, Luke is building anticipation. I, let, let's recap from the top, okay? You have Caesar Augustus, the great adopted son of Julius Caesar, 
considered worthy to be praised, great bringer of peace amongst the Romans, a political savior, if you will. And because of this influence, homeboy's got all the authority in the Roman world, and yet merely is just a, a foreshadowing of an even greater ruler with greater authority to come. And yet he uses his authority by issuing a decree that has Joseph and Mary head to Bethlehem, the city of David. David, who himself was considered a great ruler, a king who the Messiah will be a descendant of. Like, see the anticipation building. The anticipation is building here. And the God who created both David and Caesar Augustus with greater authority than both is about to put on flesh and enter into this world. So we see that Luke is building anticipation here. He's allowing us to see this great God who is fulfilling the promise to have, this, to, to have his savior born in Bethlehem. And we see the climax of all this anticipation in verse seven. And she gave birth to her firstborn son wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the end. And so I know today the manger has been made to look all cute and whatnot, but listen, mangers are not cute. They're gross, okay? They're, they're feeding troughs for animals. So what's going on here? Remember, we are reflecting on these events. You mean to tell me that this God with such great authority, literally flexing his sovereign muscles over the great Caesar Augustus for all to see, all for the sake of having a no-name woman in Mary from a no-name town, Nazareth, end up in Bethlehem, which is Joseph's hometown, so you know he's probably got family there, that's probably judging them because homegirl's pregnant and he's not the dad, like he's not the dad, and they're not married, right? right? And, and all of this, you see, the, in all of this, God is obviously pulling the strings here, but behind all of these events, they're all leading up to the birth of his son, and yet he forgets to make a reservation for them at the end. And because of that, you have the Holy One of God, the Son of God himself, with no room and having to lay his head in a manger, and a less than ideal gross feeding trough. I mean, this is my, this should blow your mind. Like something, something sounds broken here. It looks broken. And this is why I think Luke wants to emphasize, yo, this, this, this actually happened because it sounds ridiculous. What God with that much authority actually would do something like that? Tori's mentioned this in the past that oftentimes what we see in scripture happening physically is actually meant to portray a spiritual reality. So we see God's sovereignty on full display yet wills for his son to be, more, to be born in poor conditions. Why? Because he's on a mission. And he wants to show in this mission, he wants the physical illustration of him being born in poor conditions to embody and illustrate the spiritual mission that he came to accomplish. A mission that Paul highlights clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your, your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is, this is God's love being flexed for us at its finest. You see, sin leaves us spiritually poor before God. And when Caesar uses his authority to enrich himself and enrich his kingdom, God, who has even greater authority, uses that authority to become poor so that we can be rich. I mean, what kind of God does that? Like, we're meant to ask that question. Who would do that? A God who truly loves his people would do that. Okay, we see in verse seven that Mary wrapped Jesus in swaddling cloths. Now, swaddling is an interesting word because it's somewhat made up. Luke uses the verb that means, um, verbs that mean to tear 
to imply that Jesus was actually wearing torn pieces of Mary's garments. And so we see here in verse 7, as we continue reading it, that the conditions of Jesus's birth would actually closely mimic the conditions of his death 30 plus years later. That, as, that at his birth, he's wearing torn pieces of clothes. But as his cru- at his crucifixion, rather than wearing torn garments, those crucifying him would actually tear his garments and they'd cast lots for them. And rather than being wrapped in swaddling cloths at his birth, at his death, he'd actually be wrapped in grave clothes. And rather than being laid in a manger, he would be laid in a grave so that by the shedding of his innocent blood, those guilty may have his righteousness imparted to them. That those in him, though they're dead in their sins, may inherit eternal life through him. And so as we reflect on this, we need to understand that as we see in verse 7, every, every person of the triune Godhead actually contributes in showing and participates in showing just how much we are loved. They all participate in this great act of love towards humanity. You have the God, the Father, who loves so greatly that he gave his son. Now, this is just another John 3.16, you know, oh, we, you know, it's on Tim Tebow's uh, cheeks and it's on all our decals. Like, it's one of those things we just allow, we allow it to wash over us without actually, like, let's take a hot minute and actually reflect on, like, what that means, right? Some of my favorite videos to watch on YouTube are baby announcement videos. (laughs) They are. Um, And so it's when couples that have been trying to have a child finally find out that they're pregnant Usually, you know, the mom finds out first, but then records the, records the dad's reaction. And I'm telling you, like, after the sermon, don't pause it, but after the sermon, <laughs> seriously, go, go, go to YouTube and type it in. Husband finds out he's going to be a father for the first time or baby announcement videos. I encourage you to watch them. And if you're like me, it doesn't matter what mood you're in when you start the video. By the end of the video, you're going to have a big old dumb smile on your face, just cheesing. Because what's going to happen is you're going to watch these these videos. You're going to see the excitement that these people feel. And it's going to become contagious. It's going to be tangible to you. And you may even start celebrating them like, yo, you don't even know these people. But you start praying for them. You pray for their baby. Why is this happening? Right? They, they are experiencing this pure bliss, especially the dads when they find out, yo, we've been trying to, we've been trying to have a baby, and here it is, like we, you know, we're gonna have a child. You know, in one of those videos, actually, the dad, his reaction was like, yo, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, yo, shut up. And he just got more and more intense, you know? And the reality is no one watches that and is like, bro, that's your wife. Like, don't tell her to shut up, right? Like, no, we get it. Like, yo, this dude, he's experiencing emotions and an excitement that he can't even put into words. There's there's this love that he already has for this baby that's eight months away. Like, he hasn't even met this baby yet. And yet he's so excited. There's so much love there. Why is that? Because some of the greatest joys in life involve children. Some of the greatest joys in life involve children. And likewise, some of the most painful wounds you can ever experience in this life also involve children. Ash and I were pregnant in May and lost our baby at seven weeks. And it's the most painful thing we've had to endure in our marriage so far. And I think about pain of parents that lose children at any age, whether unborn, infants, teenagers, even as adults, to lose a child is one of the most painful things you could ever experience in this life. No sane person would willingly choose to endure that kind of pain. And the greater the love for the child, the greater the pain of the loss. 
Yet here we have God who is the very essence of love himself, who loves his son with a perfect love. He gives his son to be sacrificed as a reflection of his perfect love for us. But it's not just the father that demonstrates this perfect love. Jesus as God's son demonstrates it too. God's son who, though all creation was made through him, would become a human baby, subjecting himself to the form of his own creation, only to die at the hands of his own creation so that you and I can put our trust in him and call his father our our father too. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves us. And we can't go another Christmas without letting this really sink in and reflect on it that, yo, God really loves me. Like God became a child so I could become a children, that I can become a child of God, that the father gave his son and the son gave his life. And the Holy Spirit plays a vital role in this love story too, but we'll touch on that a little later. So lastly, as we reflect on what God has done, I think we are beckoned to respond. And there are really two ways that you can respond. One is by receiving his love, and the other is obviously just rejecting it flat out. Now, I think there there are certain things that mark the life of someone that has truly received God's love. One is that they've submitted to Christ um, and no longer living for themselves, but living for him. And the second, John um, actually points out in 1 John that, that those who have been loved by God actually love others. Like that God's love for me that I see here doesn't just stop at me, but it flows through me out onto others. And so as we reflect on this, I pray, man, if, as we receive this, that it wouldn't just stop at God's love for me, it would, it would pour out um, and actually empower me to live a selfless life and give selflessly in the same way that God has given his uh, life to me. Now there's a second way that we can respond and that's to reject God's love entirely. Obviously denying Christ and what he's done is to reject God himself. That's obvious. But rejecting God's love doesn't always have to look like just flat out denying Christ. Rejecting God's love can look like reflecting on everything we've seen in this passage and yet still coming to the conclusion that you're unworthy of love and that you're unlovable. When we don't receive God's love, we are essentially saying his good and perfect gift that he gave to show just how perfect his love is for us isn't good enough. And so for some of us, I know it's just really hard to receive that, but you are, you're worthy of love. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the negative words that were continually spoken over you as a child, or maybe even as an adult. Maybe one day you found yourself doing something that you never imagined that you would ever do. And so it's been impossible to forgive yourself, to to really receive that you're worthy of love. Or maybe you're like me, where my definition of love was actually superficial growing up. It was shallow. And so because I felt ugly and unattractive, and I didn't get the attention that some of my friends got for their looks, it became more and more difficult to even love myself. Maybe you believe the lie that's all too easy to believe in today's age, especially in the church, that your worthiness of love is determined by your relationship status, whether you're single, married, or or dating. We live in a broken world and we ourselves contribute to that brokenness. And so something may have happened through your own brokenness or as a result of the brokenness around you that has led you to this conclusion that you're unlovable, that you're unworthy of God's love. And so I just wanna speak in in the last few minutes I have, I wanna speak to that person. I wanna speak into that. And I wanna be as loving and as gracious as I can be when I say this. You don't get to make that call. We don't get to make the call on who's worthy of love and who isn't. We don't get to make that call for other people. 
We don't get to make that call for ourselves. Only God as the one true source of love gets to make that call. And he's made the call in Jesus that you are worthy of love. You're worthy. You're worthy of love. Ash has these Nigerian pants that my mom ordered from her from Nigeria. Um, And bro, KC might be the only one to know, but sometimes Nigerian fabric can be kind of stiff. You know what I'm saying? So she ended up tearing these pants a couple months ago. And just this week, she comes to me and tells me, we're driving and she tells me, babe, I tried sewing my pants back together. I did everything I could, but they're, they're lost cause. They're done. They're kaput. They're out. Like, they're beyond repair, which sounds reasonable until you realize, until you learn the fact that my wife does not sew. She doesn't know how to sew. She doesn't even have a sewing machine, right? She has no idea what she's doing. She, none. So homegirl has zero technique and tried to just hand weave her pants back together and realized, yo, I don't, know, I don't know what I'm doing, but these pants must be beyond repair because I can't fix it. And then tried to tell me, yo, there's nothing we can do. I'm like, yo, that, we started laughing as, because of how ridiculous that was. No, zero technique, just winging it and, and having that confidence to say, yo, these pants are beyond repair. I was like, girl, get out of here. <laughs> But we know that that's, I'm like, yo, we know it's not how it works. It's not how it works. Here's the logic. The logic is you take your pants to an expert and let them make the call. Let's say someone who's been sewing for their entire lives or maybe even has an inventory of clothes that they've sewn or repaired before to show their mastery and their proof that, yo, I know what I'm doing. Like, I'm an expert on this subject. You take it to them, and if they tell you your pants can't be fixed, then it's over, all right? I mean, then you can come to the logical conclusion that, yo, I guess, you know, I guess my pants are done. Only, the only thing here that I'm trying to say is we can't justifiably say that we're not worthy of love because we are not the source of love. We, our love is fickle. Our love is but a shallow depiction of God's love for us. And too many of us come to that conclusion, but we don't get to make the call. We're not the experts, not even close. And so if you truly want to know if you're worthy of love, position your heart to reflect on what the one true source of love has actually done. As the love expert himself, as the love expert himself, we see all through this passage that he orchestrates all of human history so that you and I may see his affection towards us, that he would deliver us from sin, and that he would not only give his child to be born in a manger, a feeding trough in Bethlehem, which Bethlehem translates literally to to mean house of bread. So we see God gave his son and presented him to the world as the bread of life, whose body would one day be broken, whose innocent blood would one day be shed, so that all who receive his love would have their soul satisfied once and for all. The one who there was no room for him at the end, even though there was no room for him at the end, through his death, those who receive him are not only given a room to belong at his father's house, but are given a seat to the family table as children of God. That's love. Like, that's love. That is true love. And so my prayer is that as we really reflect on on God's love this Christmas, that it wouldn't just be another one of these verses or another one of these truths that just go in one ear and out the other, but that we would truly, truly receive it that we would truly, truly receive it. Um, Let's pray. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. God, we love you. Thank you so much for all that you've done. As we just sit and reflect, God, we see that you have given everything for us. 
that we may know just how worthy we are of your love, worthy of your son, God. What's even crazier is that we deserve spiritual, like we are, you make us worthy. It's not about us being worthy because of what we do. You, you make us worthy. And so would we selflessly receive your love? Would we receive it? And that it wouldn't just end at us, Lord, but that it would actually flow through us and that you would use your children that have been adopted into the family of God to actually go out and reach other people, bringing them into the family of God. You not only love us, but you repurpose us to actually be a part of seeing other people loved into your kingdom too. God, that's love. And we love you, God. Thank you so much for what you've done in Jesus. Amen.